You know, it's easy to look around the world and see what the Christian life is not. Right? We turn on the news, we read the newspaper, and you're just devastated at the, the wickedness of some people's hearts. And uh, just the, the sadness in this world as you... Uh, we want to even ignore it half the time, right? We don't turn on the news for the sake of ignoring uh, just the evil that's out there. But sometimes the Christian life is not so um, dramatic in its uh, opposition. We're not making the news because we are so opposite and so surprising to people. It's just not. There is, seems to be not that great of a difference. Sometimes the Christian life is just subtle differences. Uh, little things in you and in me that are... Dramatically different, but yet not uh, ecstatic out there, not newsworthy, as it were. There are some things in the Christian life, as you read Romans chapter 12, showing us what a Christian looks like, that are just really subtle. Some things are small. Um, to others, they may seem insignificant, but to God, they're uh, incredibly important to us. And so, this morning, we're going to look at eight different characteristics uh, of a Christian uh, that are found in this passage we're going to look at this morning. We looked at uh, five last week and eight this, this week. Uh, and they're going to be categorized in three ways. Uh, in serving, abiding, and surrendering. Let's look at uh, God's Word. And uh, then we will dive into his text. So Romans chapter 12. Uh, look at verse 9 with me. I'll just read through 13. This is God's Word. It says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Last week we looked at verses 9 and 10. We uh, discover what it means to have genuine love, that we ought to have that uh, above all other people. We want authenticity. People want authentic people. So that doesn't mean putting on a mask. This word genuine we looked at is the opposite of being a hypocrite, a mask wearer. So that's what we were to be, people who love genuinely. And we discovered that loving genuinely is also a person who hates A person who hates what is evil, hates what is damaging to the glory of God and damaging to people. So we hate what is evil. What is it that is robbing people from a right relationship with God? That's the right kind of love. That's a genuine love. A love that hates what is evil. And hold fast to what is good. Loving one another with a brotherly affection and outdoing one another and showing honor. Those were some of the marks of what it means to be a Christian. Some of the fruits is what God produces in His children. It carries on in verse 11 and 12 and 13 with a few more things. So verse 11, we can see that we are to be a serving people. A serving people. It begins by saying, do not be slothful in zeal. It's interesting the way that phrase is posed. It's posed in the negative. Do not be slothful in zeal. It could have just said, be zealous. Or could have just said, be diligent. But it would be missing half the point. Do not be slothful in zeal. Uh, One commentator says it this way, In regards to what you ought to be doing, don't be lazy. You'd miss out on half of the whole 
thing if you took out the negative. Do not be slothful in zeal. In zeal, or the King James says in business, and it uses that word because it's, it's thinking about the, the Christian business, the, the business of your life, how you operate your life, what you ought to be doing, the kind of work, the kind of person a Christian should be doing. Don't be slothful in that. Don't be lazy in it. Don't just sit back and expect it all to fall into place. If you want to grow as a Christian, and you know the good you ought to do, and you don't do it, what does the Bible say you're doing? If you know the good you ought to do, and you don't do it, you sin. And so here, it's, it's showing us part of the problem, part of the sin is laziness. If you know the good you ought to do, this, this business of being a Christian, this what it means to be a Christian, and you think, I'm just going to sit on a bench and see how this plays out. It won't happen. And it's laziness. What does it mean to be a Christian parent or a Christian grandparent? That's the good you ought to do. You know what you ought to do. And the Bible instructs you how to be a parent or a grandparent. Are you slothful in that? Are you just slow to act on that? Are you intentional? Or are you just sitting back thinking, well, I'll just do my own thing? Or how does it, what does the Bible teach us to be a Christian neighbor or a Christian customer? And are we pursuing that or are we lazy in it? And be like, you know what? I have a right to be angry at this cashier. <laughs> what does it mean to be a Christian customer or even neighbor? Oh, the neighbor's tree fell on my yard. Well, they're paying for that, aren't they? They broke my fence. Their dog's annoying. All these sorts of things. What does it mean to be a Christian neighbor? Do you know the, the good you ought to do being a neighbor? Are you lazy in it? What does it mean to be a Christian member of a church? To be part of the body of Christ? Does it mean that you just come and be served all the time? Are you slothful in zeal in in what you ought to be doing? The business of being a Christian as a parent, as a neighbor, as a fellow church member? We ought not to be slothful or lazy in what we ought to do. Colossians chapter 3 says, Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. If you're a parent, do it with all your might for the Lord. If you're a grandparent, grandparent with all your might for the Lord. If you're a neighbor, which you are, neighbor with all your might for the Lord. Your customer you're Canadian, you're human, do it for the Lord. Work heartily, whatever you do, as for the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal, in in the things you ought to do with diligence. It's a warning against trying to do as little work as possible and get by. Some of us are like that. All the time, some of us are like that in lazy seasons and tired seasons. We want to do as little work as possible to get by in your marriage you want to do as little work as possible to just let it hold on in your finances in your job you just want to do as little work as possible and make as much money as you can to do as little work as possible is not the way of a Christian we are not to be slothful in zeal if we know what we ought to do in this life we ought to do it heartily as to the Lord 
Tom Schreiner, a great commentator, says, instead of caving in to inactivity, believers are to be diligent and earnest and disciplined. And the counterpart to laziness is fervency, which is the next part of the verse. You see, it says, do not be slothful in zeal. Next, be fervent in spirit. The word fervor comes from the verb to mean to boil or to boil over, bubbling over. Be fervent. Boil over. That doesn't sound like lukewarmness or uh, I don't really care. I'm just going to do the minimum. To boil over, it takes energy to boil water. And what about for you? And here where it says, uh, be fervent in spirit. Some wonder, what does that word mean? Does that mean in, in the Holy Spirit and what he has in me? Does it mean my spirit? It can mean both, and Paul uses the word both ways, but here in this context, it's almost as though it's your spirit, your personality, your passions that are bubbling over because of the Holy Spirit. So be fervent, bubble over, let it flow out into your life, into your neighborhood, into your family, let it flow out what the Spirit is doing in you what He's reflecting in you, what He's making you to be. Let it bubble over. Don't let it just stay cool and on the side. Let it boil over and bubble over to say as you're being transformed, the the first part of this chapter, right? Being transformed by the renewal of our mind. As God's transforming you through the Word of God and the people of God, let that transformation boil over. Let passion take over. Your passion for Jesus, let it bubble over into all areas of life. Be fervent. Let it boil. Don't just be lazy. And don't just be, well, it's not my personality. I'm not bubbly. That doesn't matter. There is introverts in heaven. And there are introverts who are evangelists. It's not meaning a bubbly personality. It means that who you are and who God is making you to be and how God is transforming you and His Spirit is showing Himself in you and bearing fruit in you is pouring over into every area of your life so that you're not lazy in what you ought to be doing. But you are fervent in it. And you you put all your energy into it and you let it boil over so that you are passionate about what Christ is passionate about. It impacts all. All things. And what it ends up doing, according to the last part of the verse, is that you are serving the Lord. In all things. As that verse in Colossians says, work heartily as to the Lord, for you are serving the Lord Christ. In your parenting. In your neighboring. In your church going. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so it says, at the end of this verse, serve the Lord. This helps to show where that overflow or that passion directs itself. Our passion does not direct itself to a new hobby. Our passion directs itself to service to Christ. Jesus himself says in Luke 6, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Are you do you know what Jesus tells you to do? And are you doing it? Are you serving the Lord? It's amazing to think of the idea of him being Lord is really important when you think about servanthood. He is Lord. He is ruler. He is reigning. He is king. He calls the shots. Are you serving him? Where he is calling the shots in your thought life, in your bank account, in your parenting, 
in your marriage, is he calling the shots? Or are you just trying to get by, doing as little as possible? Are you not fervent? Are you not letting his spirit transform you and bubble over into these areas of life? Or are you allowing him to be the Lord of your life, the king of your life, the king of your decisions, and are you serving him? Saying, yes, Lord. What is it, Lord? How high do you want me to jump? Yes, Lord, I'll do it. Where do you want me to go? Yes, Lord, I'll do it. How much do you want me to spend? Yes, Lord, I'll do it. That's what it means to serve the Lord. It doesn't just mean go and work in a church. It means be available to God at all turns of life. Serve the Lord. All of these things are relating to our serving as Christians. Serving. We're not slothful or lazy in what we ought to be doing. We are fervent. We are being transformed by the Spirit of God and boiling over into all areas of life. And we are intentionally serving the Lord. We are not just sitting by and by letting others do the job. All three of these goes together in our serving of God. That's a mark of a Christian. It's a serving person. The next verse shows us another uh, overall mark. The mark is abiding. A Christian abides There's an excellent paraphrase of this verse and the verse... uh, No, sorry, just this verse. Uh, Here's this paraphrase. It says, Insofar as... And you can look at your verse. Look at verse 12 as I read this paraphrase. Insofar as we have cause to hope, let us be joyful. Insofar as we have cause of pain, let us hold out. Insofar as a door of prayer is open to us, let us continue to use it. It's a great paraphrase of this verse. This verse begins by saying, rejoice in hope. The Bible tells us often to rejoice. It doesn't just leave us in that search for what are we to rejoice in. Where where are we to find our joy? Where are we to find our, our happiness? It doesn't leave us in some endless pursuit of happiness. It has no aim. No understanding of where you're to go to find true joy. It doesn't leave you aimless. The Bible tells you where true joy is. And here it even says, rejoice in hope. Have joy. Specifically in tribulation and difficulty, have joy in where? In hope. Assuming that you know what hope is. Assuming you have hope. That you know where hope comes from and you know where hope looks to. Rejoice in it. In this hope, what, what is hope? Is it just some, some idea out there and I hope things work out for the best? Well, no, this sort of hope is a forward-looking hope. A hope that Romans chapter 5 says uh, it does not put you to shame. If you hope in Jesus and all that He has done, you, you trust in Him and what He's going to accomplish, you hope in that and the things unseen, you'll never be ashamed. You don't have to worry like, I hope I get this new job that flops. You're never going to have to worry about this sort of hope. Rejoice. And that's why you can rejoice. Rejoice in hope. Hope in God. I love David, the psalmist. King David, he repeatedly tells himself, he preaches to himself, hope in God. When he's facing difficulties, facing trial, people are after him, everything seems to be failing, he preaches to himself, hope in God. I will again rejoice, he says. Hope in God. So we rejoice in hope. Well, why is God so hopeful? How do we know that we can hope in God? 
Well, he's given us his word. And, and as you apply Romans chapter 12 and let him transform you, then that is going to bear fruit in rejoicing. It's going to bear fruit in hope. Not necessarily in happiness, but in hope. And deep and lasting contentment, rejoicing in what God has promised. That if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. Rejoice in that. That is a hope for tomorrow because you are a sad soul if you're anything like me. You rejoice. Rejoice that there is forgiveness and His forgiveness is unending. Rejoice that you will not one day again have to stand before God and account for everything wrong you've done. Rejoice in that. Rejoice that He has taken every single one of your sins, all your griefs to bear. And He dealt with it at Calvary. Rejoice in that hope. That if you simply place your life in Jesus' hands and say, I need to be Jesus and not me before God. You can rejoice and have hope. That he says, confess and believe and you will be saved. Confess and believe. Rejoice in that hope. Have great contentment, great lasting joy in that hope. The hope that the Bible gives you. Nothing this world would ever offer you. Rejoice in hope, which is so necessary. And it's amazing because if you can learn to, by God's grace, if you can learn to rejoice in hope and you have clarity of mind to to understand how God would give you hope in in good times, and you learn to rejoice in the things that God tells you to rejoice in, then what's next isn't so impossible. Where it says, be patient in tribulation. It assumes there's trials coming. Everyone. Different severities, different areas of your life, Trials are coming, and it is sure. And it tells us to be patient. To be patient. This is indeed an important command, a good reminder, because we are so prone to impatience. When you get the flu, you just want it to be over. When uh, you're in a traffic jam, you just want it to hurry up. When you search and search and search for a wholesome movie to watch, you might get impatient like I do. (laughs) When you respond to an insult, are you able to hold your tongue and be patient in that tribulation when someone is trying you? When you are maybe waiting for the result of a scan or a test, are you patient? Are you able to be patient? Does patience fill your heart? Silently waiting without anxiety or worry or concern for the time or the fairness or the result. Are you able to be patient? Unwavering trust in God's perfect timing and plan. Unwavering trust. Are you patient in tribulation? For some of our brothers and sisters around the world, this looks like when they are awaiting a trial as they sit in jail because they believe in Jesus. Are they patient? Or when they endure physical beatings, or public slander, or people taking away their property because they believe in Jesus. Are they patient in tribulation? The Apostle Paul is a great example of someone who went through tribulation. He went through trial. He accounts it in 2 Corinthians. He says... So here's what he went through. Far more imprisonments than these other men, with countless beatings, often near death. 
Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there's the daily pressure on me of the anxiety of all the churches. Paul faced tribulation and trial. But yet he knew that by God's grace we could be patient in them. We'd be patient in them because we rejoice in hope. We know that these tribulations, these trials are producing in us an eternal way to glory. They're making the glory of God and what we hope for to be that much more beautiful. These light momentary afflictions, the Bible says, and Paul says it, the guy who just went through all of those things, being beaten. And you know, this is so important when you're reading that part in in 2 Corinthians when Paul's talking about his different sufferings. You know, we think about Jesus being whipped and lashed, right? Paul went through that very experience five times. Five times. They beat him and whipped him and flogged him near to death. Once he recovered, they did it again. Five times. Paul would have looked like a piece of meat. And yet he's the one who's telling us, be patient. Be patient in tribulation. Endure it. God will get you through it. Paul's the one. He's the one who God has graciously given this heart of patience because he rejoices in hope. He knows what God has for those who love him. And he knows the vengeance is God's. So he endures. And he trusts God's timing. He trusts God's providence. He trusts God's working in ways and all things. And so he just says, be patient in tribulation. It's amazing is trials actually produce hope. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. We looked at this extensively. Uh, It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. We're not put to shame because God has loved us. So we rejoice in hope. We're patient in tribulation. And that last part of this verse says, be constant in prayer. And you think, in, in that context, even when you think about rejoicing, even when you think about your patience in trials, how in the world are you ever going to do that if you don't pray? <laughs> try, try and do that on your own strength. Try and do that without a, a companion or a friend in God. You won't. You will not be patient. You pray. And be constant in prayer. The term is also devote yourself to prayer. This is the central fuel line to a Christian's life. So if you feel like you're sputtering along as a Christian and you're running on empty, have you prayed? Have you been constant in communion with God? We know that this is the breath of life of a Christian, yet we often neglect it. 
we have better things to do or, or other things to do. We don't spend the time in prayer we ought to. It's amazing. Um, you know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he had the busiest days of his life, he spent an extra two hours in prayer. The busiest day of his life. You think he wanted to get up early so he can get on his to-do list? No, he got up early so he could spend more time praying. Five hours in prayer on the busiest day of his life. And guess what? He got through. Be constant in prayer. God is going to get you through your day. And He's going to help weed out what's not important. If you've run out of time, God's going to help you. So be constant in prayer. Why don't we pray? You know, maybe you have a habit of just praying before meals or just praying before bed. And that's good. That's a good place to start. But are we constant? Are we in constant conversation and communion with God, honest to God, praising God? So here's the thing. Oftentimes we just think of the word prayer as asking God for things. That's not it. Prayer is attributing to God His worth. God, you are great. You are holy. You are mighty. That's prayer. Confessing of sins. God, I... My, my eyes are, are wandering right now. I'm tempted to X, Y, or Z right now. It's Thanksgiving. God, thank you for the beautiful sunshine. Thank you for the birds. Thank you for an opportunity to share my heart with someone. And it is asking for things as well. But we can be constant in this. Constant in prayer. This is the lifeblood of a Christian. It's communion with your God. James Montgomery Boyce says, the only reasons we might fail to pray are that, number one, we do not think we need God's help, thinking we are adequate of ourselves. Or number two, we don't believe God is really a loving Heavenly Father. Why else would we not pray or be in prayer continually? We don't think we need God's help, thinking we're sufficient. Or we don't believe He is a loving Heavenly Father. Those are two main reasons why we don't pray. If you think you can do it yourself, you're not going to ask God. And then maybe you realize this in your own life. The hardest times of your life, that's when you might pray more, right? Because God has brought you so low and so empty that you realize, I got nothing left, that I can't actually do this without God. And so you turn to God in, in a great amount of prayer. But yet, on a day-to-day basis, we think, we got this. I got this. I can do this. I can have this conversation. I can, I can balance my budget myself. I can decide where I'm going to live on my own. I can decide where to drive. And I can drive safely on my own. I don't need God's help. I'm adequate. Man, we really believe that, don't we? In the daily things, we rely on ourselves and not on God. Or we don't think He's a loving Heavenly Father. We think of God only as judge and, and just. So we tremble, and we won't even approach Him as a Father who loves us in His discipline. Two reasons we don't pray constantly. But, this verse tells us, well, if we want to rejoice in hope, if we want to be patient in tribulation, then we ought to be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Set time aside. If you don't have a good habit of praying, set time aside. Put it on your calendar and let no one bother you. This is my prayer time. This is where I come to God and I tell Him how great He is. This is where I come to God and I confess my sin and temptation. This is where I come to God and I thank Him. And this is where I come to God and I lift up my friends and my family. I lift up the lost. I lift up the nations to Him. Set aside time. And you don't have to start with an hour or five hours. 
You start with 15 minutes set aside. And then you might find that you don't have enough time with your God and so you need more. Set aside time to be constant in prayer. Depend on Him, not your own. So, these marks of a Christian, firstly, are categorized by a serving person and an abiding. We are remaining steadfast in God. We are hoping in Him. We are being patient in Him. And we are relying on Him in prayer. We are abiding as we are serving. And the third thing we see in the next verse, in verse 13, is that Christians are a people who are surrendering. Serving, abiding, surrendering. It says, contribute to the needs of the saints. We automatically think, well, I automatically think of financial contribution. Contribute to the needs of. I always think, put money uh, in someone's pocket. But that's not only how you can contribute to the needs of the saints. Saints have needs in many different ways. They may need childcare, So you can contribute by showing up. They may need laundry done while they're looking after their crazy kids. So show up and do their laundry. They may need just a meal. They may need a ride. What do your Christians need around you? Do you know their needs? And here's the, the beauty of this verse. It really breaks you out of self-focus. Do you even know the needs of the person next to you without them saying a thing? That's the kind of community that God imagines for His people, right? We are a body of believers. We are connected. We are members of one another, He says. We need each other. And the Bible's vision of the Christian life is not just that you need each other on a Sunday. Or that's when you are together. No, no. The Bible's vision of a Christian is you are so in each other's lives on Monday, Tuesday. Like, it is so integrated that we would know the needs of a person without them saying them. You just know a need. Does someone need their car washed? Like, have you been by their house? Says, walk by and prayed for them. Just wash their car. All these sorts of things. There's little things that you can contribute to the needs of the saints, and it's not only financially. Does someone need encouragement? Do you know that? Or are they just smiling all the time? You think, oh, they're okay. Does someone need a phone call? Does someone need a visit? Does someone need you to pray for them? What do they need? Do you know their needs? Are you in their lives so that you can contribute to their needs? So that you can give of yourself for the sake of others? It starts with a household of faith. God says, I'm going to take care of my people and the way I do it is through my people. And the nations will notice. How come you love them in that way? How come you give of yourself to them? How come you gave them your car? How come you spent all that time? Don't you have Retirement? Don't you just get to go to the golf course? Why are you spending your retirement contributing to the needs of the saints? Why are you at their house all the time? It's because that's what God wants and it's what pleases Him. It's what encourages His people. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Galatians chapter 6 says the same thing. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And then he specifies, especially those who are in the household of faith. These are your brothers and sisters who need encouragement daily. Are you there for them? Do you know their needs? Do you know when they have appointments that you could possibly drive them so they don't have to worry about the stress? Do you know when their children are astray or fighting so that you might be there just to encourage them? That you might just pray with them? Like, Do you know the needs of the saints? I think this is a real challenge 
Because, yes, some needs are open, they're out there. My family's been very needy and has been known. And you have contributed well. But there's some families who have needs in the same way but aren't as visible. And so their needs go unmet. Do do you know them? Do you know the needs of the saints around you? That is something really to encourage you. So rather than talking about the weather after church, talk about each other's needs. And the way you can discover their needs is, how can I pray for you? (laughs) Be constant in prayer. Okay, what's next? Contribute the needs of the saints. Okay, I think those two might go together. Ask someone, how can I pray for you? And they might say, well, you can pray for my, my son or my daughter. Or you can pray, I have an appointment coming up. Or you can pray because we're struggling financially. All these sorts of things. And so you can begin to know the needs of the saints, yes, by being in their lives, by being at their house on a Tuesday. But you can also know them just by asking regularly how I might pray for you. Those are the ways you can discover how you can contribute to the needs of the saints. So vitally important to take care of one another. The second part of this verse says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality or pursue hospitality. Take the initiative in hospitality. First century Christians had a completely different version of hospitality than we do. You know, we think hospitality is having somebody over for dinner when we have our fine china out. First century Christians were, oh, well, there's a Christian passing through town. They don't have a place to stay. I'm going to open up my house and they can have my bed. And I'm going to go through all that and I'm going to do all their laundry. And that was hospitality in the first century Christian world. If you knew of a Christian traveling through town, you did not let them be burdened by having to find an inn to stay in or a hotel. You said, oh, I don't know you, but I know your brother in Christ. And so, hey, come to my house. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to make sure you're clothed. I'm going to make sure you have a warm bed to stay. That's hospitality. That's like first century Christian hospitality. Like, and we think, well, that's extreme. I'm not opening up my house to some strange Christian. Uh, but there are ways that we can do it that doesn't include fine china. If you've not yet read the book that we have in our church library, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, you need to read it. Because it encourages you in that ways of gospel opportunities is through hospitality. So what's amazing about the author who wrote that is her hospitality extends uh, uh, preeminently to her church family. She's making sure they're taken care of. They are always welcome. Her door is an open policy. Literally, people just walk in and out of her house all day long and take food out of her cupboard. It's, it's amazing. But then... Because she does that for her church family, her neighbors see and notice, and they catch on, and then they feel welcome in her home to do the same thing. And she has so many opportunities to sit down and open the Bible with these people because of hospitality. But it began getting used to the idea of just having people in your space with people that you are supposed to love, first and foremost, your brothers and sisters in Jesus. And so it's a great book. The gospel comes with a house key. Uh, read that book and be encouraged because it's not all about fine china. It's about styrofoam plates and a pot of beans. Hospitality is so vitally important. And you know what hospitality is not? It is not just being friendly. It is not just being nice. It is not just being welcoming. So a church can be friendly and welcoming, but not hospitable. Are you hospitable? Do you care about others above yourself? Do you leave all the closest parking spaces for visitors or people with children or people with walking struggles. That's hospitable. Like, those are the sorts of things that we don't think of sometimes in terms of hospitality. It's beyond welcoming. It's beyond happy or nice or friendly. 
A church ought to be that way because the Christians inside the church ought to be that way, hospitable. Giving of yourself for the sake of others. Whatever I have, I surrender it. Christians are not only serving, not only abiding, but they're surrendering. All I have is God's. I try to teach that to my kids. When they say it's mine, I say, no, it's God's. Everything we have is God's. Do you you think that things are yours? My house, my car, my money? No, they're God's. And they're to be used for Him. So you surrender them. God's yours. This is your house. This is your car. This is your money. How might it be used for the sake of other people? Surrender it. As verses 1 and 2 tell us. Offer yourself to God as a sacrifice. Surrender your whole self, everything you have to God, to be used up. And here it tells us practically how to do that. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Pursue hospitality. Don't just think, oh, when the opportunity arises, then I'll do it. No, this word is seek. Pursue. How are you going to be hospitable this week? Have you determined it already? That's what this verse tells us is a mark of a Christian. A growing mark of a Christian is to offer what you have for the sake of others. We learn a lot about ourselves as God makes these marks visible in these few verses. It shows us how much we need Him. How much we need Him. How much forgiveness we need. How much of His help and His strength we need. We need Him in our serving because when it comes to our service to Him or others, we are often lazy or slothful. Because we want to serve ourselves first. Not the Lord and not the people around us. We need His forgiveness and we need His help. We need His help in our abiding. When we face trials, we grumble. We have hearts of ingratitude instead of rejoicing in hope. We are impatient. Rather than waiting patiently, trusting God's sense of timing and His plan, we take matters into our own hands instead of folding our hands in prayer. We need God's help. We don't trust God sometimes, and maybe we don't think or even recognize we need His help, so we neglect prayer instead of being constant in it. Oh, how we need forgiveness and God's help. We need God's forgiveness and help in our surrender. Because rather than freely giving, we store up ferociously. We don't contribute or extend hospitality because we are selfish with what God has lent us. Oh, how much we need a Redeemer forgive us, to take the guilt of this passage away from us as we read this and say, I don't do this. We need a Redeemer to take that guilt away. We need a Creator, a Recreator to come in us and and to make us these things, to shape us and mold us to be these kind of people who glorify God through our serving, abiding, and surrendering. And we need God. So, oh, how we love Jesus. Because He has come. And He came not to be served, but to serve. So then we too should be marked with servitude, not slothfulness. He died in our place, forgiving sin and securing for us a place in God's merciful presence, therefore giving us hope. Something to hope in. He died, giving us hope. He was resurrected, giving us hope. He ascended, giving us hope. He indeed endured suffering. So we should endure our trials and be patient in them. He is our help. And so we pray to Him. 
He upholds the world by the word of His power, so we ought to uphold each other by whatever we may have. With God's help and by His grace, we are to serve, abide, and surrender for the sake of His glory and the sake of the saints. Let's pray to that end. God, You are worthy. You are worthy of our whole selves. You are great and there is no one besides You. You're majestic and loving and just. And God, we are, we are not. And God, You've designed us to be Your representatives and we fail at that. And so God, we are thankful for passages like this in the Bible that show us the fruit that You will bear in our lives if we surrender ourselves fully to You. God, help us to be people who are serving, abiding, and surrendering our whole selves so that You might display Your glory in us. Oh God, we want to be people who love You because You first loved us. We want to be people who love others because You love them too. God, we need Your help in all of these things. Would You be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.